We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. You're listening to Founder Stories with Anouk and Barack. Brought to you by F2 Capital in partnership with IDC International Radio and No Camels. When you say Israeli cuisine, at the minute politics goes inside. We are trying to figure out if there is Israeli culinary. Hi, and welcome to Founder Stories. Today, we're talking with star chef Barak Yecheskeli, TV celebrity and founder of the exclusive Tel Aviv concept restaurant Burek, whose humor, charisma, and culinary genius have put him at the forefront of Israel's food scene now sweeping the globe. We tried to research what is Burek, and we saw it's a kind of pastry with meat in the middle. But your name is Barak. Yeah. So is Burek also a spin-off Barak? The Burek uh, is a, a spin of my wife. Basically, it's my nickname. For all my good friends, if uh, they will see me on the street, we say, hey, Burek. Not a really big story got behind it, it. Got it. I'm also Barak. And I wonder, <laughs> what does the name mean something to you? What, Barak? That's, yeah. That's my name. What do you mean if, no, if to it me, means I like, something to me? I like the, you know, the Hebrew lightning or to shine or the Arabic blessed, like bringing Baraka. a blessing on other people. Yeah. I always took some pride in that. Did it shape you at all, or did you shape it? No, I think that if something uh, shaped me, it's my uh, ginger color uh, more than my uh, name. I think what is interesting for you, Barak, is that your name comes from the Hebrew name Barak, but you, you cannot even pronounce it, right? How, you cannot say it. You can no, only I say it. I grew up Bar- in Ohio, yeah. very, very far. But, and now when I, when I go back home, the people at the airport who happen to be African-American look at me like I'm joking. They think it's an African-American name. Because yeah. of Barack Obama, <laughs> and, of course. And everyone can pronounce it. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. That's the only way to explain my name. When, they, when I say Barack and they say, what? I say, okay, Barack Obama yeah. without the Obama. <laughs> <laughs> the second exactly. joke is uh, that uh, orange is the new black. So, <laughs> Anyone else in your family complete gingy, as they call it in Hebrew, a redhead? No. No. Just me. The, the what's it called in the the red um that dragon? That, no, the no, not <laughs> the red, red dragon. dragon. <laughs> <laughs> no, in the, in Judaism, the 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 red cow that they Oh, the heifer. Sacri- the, yeah, red the red heifer, heifer that they sacrifice yeah. mm-hmm. in the in the Beit HaMikdash and I they, didn't know that. Yes. If there is a red heifer, it's, it coming the coming of the Messiah. By the end of the- <laughs> <laughs> it's a special treat. That would be yeah, correct <laughs> tonight. At the end of the at the end of the night, you usually bring out the dessert. It's uh Barak on a platter. <laughs> Barak, what is hummus? mean to you well uh, basically it's just like you said butter mm-hmm. or olive oil or uh, something very basic yeah something like uh, one of the first things that you uh, put inside your mouth <laughs> <laughs> but is there he's in- breathing in very sensually when he says hummus yeah. it's like <laughs> so there's more <laughs> to it there's a story there <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there's, is Israeli cuisine And what, what does Israeli cuisine mean to you? No, that's a very big question, and I don't, have, don't think we have enough time to answer it because I don't think there is an answer yet. First of all, it's a problem because when you say Israeli cuisine, at the minute politics goes inside. Mm. We are trying to figure out if there is Israeli culinary. And we are, when we are talking about Israeli culinary and we're trying to put borders to this culinary, so every time you say Israeli culinary... You say, wait a minute, so 
things that are coming from Lebanon fr- or from Jordan or from Syria are, are not. Mm. <laughs> But it's interesting that you talked about borders because you say that your restaurant, Borek, is, you don't call it a restaurant. It, you kind of call it you know, a place with no borders. Like yeah, where people can just come up to you and ask questions and your, your, your kitchen is in the middle of the restaurant um, and there are literally no borders inside your restaurant yeah, between like the kitchen and the... Like, when we planned it, so uh, everybody told me, okay, make the kitchen, put a bar around the kitchen and everybody would sit on the bar. I said, yeah, but then the, the bar is a border. Mm-hmm. I don't want these borders. I want them to sit around me. I want, I want it to be opened. Even if you can see, you can go really through the kitchen. You don't have to go inside the kitchen and out. Just, get, just go through it. So it will make a circle round so everybody could all the time be around the kitchen. And we put the volume up of the show a little bit because uh, maybe sometimes we would work a little bit more quiet if we were alone at the kitchen. But basically what we do is uh, a bit of a show mm-hmm. and you just need to amplify what we already do in the kitchen so that other people would feel the same energy. Right. Regarding being tucked away in the kitchen, you've said also that chefs um, usually have very big egos. They're kind of tucked away in their kitchen and they're not really interacting with their customers. Why do you think chefs have big egos? I don't think, what about your ego? I don't think it's an ego issue. I think it's something different. I think, well, anyway, I went into this uh, profession because there is something very fulfilling by feeding people and see them eat and see them smile and host them. And that's something that I cannot do when I'm back at the kitchen. So usually what I would do, I would run back and forth from the kitchen and the floor. Mm-hmm. And this way it just allows me to be in my natural uh, place and still host the people around me. I can, I can understand what you're saying because I, 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 I don't cook. I, I, Baracto scrambled eggs, and that's pretty much all that happens in our house cooking-wise. Um, we have a very nice man who comes to cook about once every three weeks, and then we freeze everything. To you, it sounds absolutely horrible, but that's the way it is. But I discovered the pleasure of seeing someone eat when, we, when Barack and I had kids. And it's, I guess for you, it's like on a much larger scale because it's for more people. For me, when my children are eating, it's like the best show in town. You know, you just see them. Success. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's just beautiful. It's a great feeling. You know, it's like a primal feeling. Just a few days ago, I had a day off. I was standing in the kitchen. And my wife went to bring all the children. Uh, they were in the kindergarten and then they went to the park. She brought them back. And they just all went inside the house and my uh, middle child, Jonathan, just went in. He, he didn't even look at me. He just, oh, there's a good smell. What are you doing? I'm cooking. What are we eating? He, he, would just, he just asked it like this and he went to the toilet. But suddenly I felt like, wow. Daddy of the year. No, it's not yeah. the, the daddy of the year that he comes back and there is a uh, so good natural. smell in the kitchen. Yeah. Flows. Good food on the table, and he feels at home, and he just asks like a child, okay, what are we eating? Yeah. In this excitement. But, but talk about, from the other side, having no borders, it can get chaotic. I, I talked to an Australian guy, and he said that they brought a group of investors to your restaurant. Mm-hmm. And one thing you do is, <laughs> you know, the wine flows like water. Yeah. You're not looking... Your glass is full again. And Australians and alcohol, it's, yeah. it's a fun mix, but... I heard it turned into a food fight. Uh, how did that make you feel? How did you handle it? 
It didn't really turn into a food fight. I think he was trying to tell you how good it was mm, eventually. Okay. And that they really uh, got free from themselves and uh, felt free in the space. Yeah. Uh, they weren't that drunk. Okay. They were pretty drunk. <laughs> they were very happy. Did I you have any of them I think a few of them went on the table uh, when the dessert came on and uh, <laughs> had a very nice dance on the table but it was fun it's like uh, do you get drunk not really no because I always see you in your TV shows you're always drinking we filmed the TV show for one week yeah. you see 50 minutes of it so. right right <laughs> they edit what they edit yeah yeah but, okay but these Australians dancing on your beautiful dessert. No, they Lay weren't out. dancing on the dessert. <laughs> okay. They finished the okay. dessert and then he went up and danced. <laughs> Talking about the dessert, I'd say the most dramatic part of an evening at Burek is, is the dessert course, which takes almost 20 minutes to prepare. And, you know, the clock is nearing midnight and you move piece by piece and layer by layer. And you end up with a two-sided black and white creation. Um, and you then declare that the dessert is a reflection of life itself. Both sides of the dessert island have different but intriguing elements and it's often difficult to choose. You sound like a chef philosopher. <laughs> is, uh, what do you mean by that? I don't remember the black and white dessert, but I remember we made one black and white. Today it's a little bit more colorful. The whole idea about this dessert is... Uh, You know, the place is not a restaurant and everybody around the kitchen and the idea is uh, on one side to give people their intimacy and on the other side to open them up and to try to make them feel at home. Uh, the first idea was how do I make people feel as my best friends? Because my best friends, when they come at home, they know where the bar is, they know where they can smoke at the porch and uh, they come into the kitchen to see what I do and ask me what, I, what am I making and giving them a taste and then the first dish is ready and they come in back and everything happens together. Here it takes a little bit more time because first you want to give people their own intimacy but then you want to open them up slowly uh, step by step and when they do you want to make them feel at home and eventually at my home everybody eats together. You want to group everybody together to eat from the same plate because You went through six dishes almost, and you know, if you've been to the Burek, it's, it's not that you sit on your uh, ass the whole three and a half hours. Mm -hmm. You uh, stand up, you can sit on the couch up at the gallery, you can go outside and have a smoke, and then you start to communicate to people, you start to getting close to people. So step by step, they open up, and then in the end, all I want to do is just all of them to be together. That's the idea. Is that why Burak is open only one day a week? Because I guess... It's it was open one day a week. I have to... Uh, it's, now it's open two days a week. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Okay, people will be happy to hear. Is that, yeah, is because that after the first year, um, my good customers and friends started to be very angry with me that you need to wait something like three or four months to get a seat in the restaurant. So we decided to open another day. And how are you going to handle being the center of the show two nights a week? Isn't it exhausting? I'm handling it and it's... Is exhausting and when people say uh, are you gonna open another night so that, that's a big no <laughs> yeah. so one or two nights a week can you can you turn a profit is profit important to you no that's not really profitable to eat for to feed 40 people uh, two nights a week okay but uh, that's not what I'm making my profit out of I'm making it from other things like but your TV shows yeah but that's the beating heart of what I do uh -huh. I wouldn't be able to be creative and think about new, new ideas to TV shows or to uh, to anything that I do on the net and 
I don't think I would have any creativity or ideas if I uh, stopped cooking, mm. if I stopped holding a knife or a pen in my hand yeah. and stand above the fire. So this is something... Because it's a risky business. I mean, they say 50, even as high as 90% of restaurants fail and most shut down after five years. So is that how you balance that risk? You're doing it, you know, for a greater purpose? The, the Burik is, uh, is the place of my heart and my creation. Yeah. Um, this is the place that uh, as cooks uh, we research, we try to learn and we try to develop and we try to do what we like and have fun. Mm -hmm. And as long as it keeps itself balanced, it's okay by me. Mm -hmm. You served uh, in the army like almost all Israelis. Mm -hmm. Was it as a chef? No. What no, did you do? I was in the Air Force. Okay. In intelligence. But <laughs> did you know back then that you loved to cook? All I can tell you is, uh, like two years ago, I started to think, how did I really become a cook? There's one thing that I remember is that I remember as a child asking my father what was his dream. And he said that his dream was to be a cook. Mm. I just remembered it like... Uh, what was your father's profession? He's an artist. He's a painter. Yeah. He's an art teacher. And maybe, the, maybe something of that went into my mind. And... In our house, the second door that would open up after the first door, when you knock on the door, is the door of the fridge. Any time that uh, friends of my father would come in, the door would be open, and then the door of the fridge would be open, and then all kind of foods would come out, mm -hmm. uh, usually a bottle of something to drink, and that's the way the conversation went. And for me, it was like, this, this is the way it needs to be. So I was always the guy who was uh, cooking for all his uh, friends, uh, whether uh, we went camping or uh, hiking. or uh, So I was the one in charge of the cooking. I never thought it would be something that, that I will do. I wanted to be a millionaire by the time I'll be 30. <laughs> <laughs> You're 46, right? Yeah, I'm 46. Has, has, has it happened? <laughs> no, it hasn't happened. I, I'm not sure it's going to happen. I, I, I left this dream a long time ago. I understood it's, it's not really a dream worth dreaming of. So after the Air Force, you went to the Technion, which is like yeah. Israel's MIT. Mm -hmm. What was in your mind at that time? Well, it wasn't in my mind. It was uh, in my parents' mind. Uh -huh. And they just uh, signed me up. And I said, okay, if you sign me up, I'll go for uh, to the exams. And then when I passed the exams successfully, I was so proud of myself that I said, <laughs> okay, if they were willing to accept me, and I didn't learn much at school, but... If they were willing to accept me, so I'll go and learn. I learned my years. Uh, I had very, very good... Uh, learned what? What was your... Civil engineer. Okay. And, and then what takes us from there to Burek? The truth is that I started cooking in India. I made uh, my uh, trip after the army very uh, late. Usually you finish the army around 21 and then mm -hmm. you fly. I uh, worked and learned. And when I was 26, I decided to, uh, to do my trip. I didn't want to go to India. I, did, I wanted to go travel uh, the States and Europe. But everybody goes to India. I said, okay, I have enough money. I'll go to India. I'll start there to see how it works. And then I'll uh, keep on going. And I fell in love. And I was almost one year over there. Wow. And I wasn't hanging around with the young kids, the young guys after the army. So uh, basically, uh, everything that everybody did for uh, at least six months. I had two weeks of it and then put it aside and said, okay. 
And then I just found myself cooking all the time. Hmm. They don't have uh, many cheese in, uh, in India. So I took their paneer and started to make all kinds of cheeses. I put it with salt in the corner of the room for one month to see how it ages. I made some Lebanese cheese from their, their yogurt. And then one day came this Italian guy with these amazing yellow flowers and asked me if I knew what it was. I didn't know. It was zucchini flowers. And he said, please bring this uh, sour uh, cheese that you're making. It was a Labane. And he just taught me how to fill uh, the flowers of the zucchini. And uh, we made tempura and we fried them. And then he taught me how his grandmother makes gnocchi. And everything just hmm. worked like this. When I, finished, when I finished India, I went to uh, Thailand. And I'm very energetic. So uh, the first uh, two weeks, I'm not if it's allowed to say on the radio, but the first two weeks I was uh, smoking a... A bunk from a <laughs> coconut. Uh-huh. But after two weeks, I just put it <laughs> I in the side. I think the statute of limitations <laughs> has passed <laughs> on your time in Thailand. So you can say whatever you want. Okay. Yeah. After two weeks, I had enough. I put it into the side. Uh, and then I just woke up every morning and cleaned the beach. Wow. The lady of the beach looked at me like I ate this, this, this wrong mushroom or something. And for, th- for an ecological, like environmental for, reason, I just had the all the energy and all the time. <laughs> and I didn't have what to do. So <laughs> <laughs> this is what I did every morning. And after a week and a half, I just showed up uh, at her kitchen and said, okay, listen, I had enough of cleaning the beach. From now on, I'm a cook in your kitchen. Whatever you do, I do. She said, okay. It looks crazy enough. And she said, okay. And I spent uh, with her like four months in the kitchen. I really enjoyed it. And then uh, most of my money uh, dried up. And, she didn't uh, pay you. You worked in the kitchen no, no. for free? No, of course. Uh-huh. And then I flew to Boston because I had a few friends over there. And I had a friend who had a French restaurant. And I started to work over there at the kitchen. One step led to another. Mm-hmm. And I you am. told your parents, I'm a chef. <laughs> I didn't felt a chef for a really long time. <laughs> I think only in the last few years I started to feel as a chef. Mm-hmm. What prefer- separates a chef from uh, well, someone who loves to cook? Well, basically the word chefs come from the word chief, which means ah. uh, the manager of the... As long as you have a few cooks and you manage them, you're a chef. Okay. Mm. There's a chef de partie, there's a chef, uh, there's, there's a chef for every station in the French kitchen, for the sauces, for the meat, for the fish, for the vegetables. You have a show, or you did a show, or you still do, called Anachno la Mapit. It's a great show. Mapit means napkin, which mm-hmm. is a play on word for map, meaning we're on the map, where you interview um, Israeli chefs around the world who have opened uh, successful restaurants. What has it taught you about Israeliness and about Israeli cuisine? I think that Israeli cuisine at the moment could be referred as an attitude. attitude of most of the chefs uh, towards food has become not only about food, but also about... Uh, the experience. The experience. Everybody are talking about uh, food, art, and music. But eventually it finishes up by food that comes out of the kitchen, music, uh, there's a playlist in the background, and there's some uh, pictures on the wall. So it doesn't really work. And this is something that I understood before I opened the Burek and... I understood that if I want all these three things to work together, you have to create something together. So basically, for example, the DJs in the Burek Nights are people that I sat down with and we are talking about food and they don't understand shit. About <laughs> But it doesn't really matter because I talk about my ideas about food, how I want people to feel, the taste, the, 
the way I build the palette of the meal. And I'm talking about each dish, where did the inspiration come from and how did I created it. And when I talk to them, their mind is already translating it to music. Mm-hmm. Inspiration breeds inspiration. Yeah. And then when they are up there, they naturally do it. They play the right music for the right food. What you're describing is so unique and special and distinctive and, and poetic and poetic and, and we hear and see that Israeli chefs are succeeding all over the world being profitable. Do you have the temptation to take yeah, what you're doing abroad? Yeah, of course. The truth is we got a uh, approach from Manhattan, LA, Amsterdam, Vienna. We still haven't decided if we're going to do it and how we're going to do it. So you wouldn't keep it running here under different leadership. You no, would take I, the whole I, crew like a show. Uh, that, that's Traveling what, what, circus. What, that's what we're trying to figure it out. Mm. If we're doing it to show, or we're trying to format the idea and to open another place uh, abroad. Yeah. Mm. Gourmet kosher. Is that an not a oxymoron? Problem. No? No, no, that's not a problem. Mm-hmm. Have you seen it work successfully? I've been cooking uh, gourmet kosher mm-hmm. to people who eat only kosher. No, that's really not a problem. And what about environmental impact? Do you ever think about that when you cook? How does that, that is one of the ideas why the place is open only two days a week and it doesn't work as a restaurant because if I know that I have 40 guests, I'm going to cook for 40 guests. Not more, not less. Exactly for 40 guests. I don't want to throw anything. Meat is a kind of a problem for me because uh, the last few years, uh, my consciousness uh, started to... Uh, to awaken, hmm. uh, to understand what we do when we eat meat. I don't think we're not supposed to eat meat. I think we're just su- uh, supposed to respect it more. Mm-hmm. It's a very controversial question, and it's, it's something that you know, I also grapple with all the time, is you know, the question of vegetarianism and veganism. And I, I think it's not black and white, though. There is a first step, which is... Reducing the amount of meat you eat and being conscious of where it comes from and who grows it and how it's grown because they say cows is, are the biggest producers of CO2 mm-hmm. in the world. And of course, there's a whole ethical issue of, of how these animals are being slaughtered. And I think there's it's not just your consciousness. There is a collective consciousness which is really changing and really encouraging locally grown, in many cases grass-fed, Meat. Although Israel is a little bit of a problem. When you look at such a small country, you know, there were not, there were not cows in this area. Hmm. Only, Interesting. Uh, only sheep and goats. The cows would, were brought here afterwards. So it's because the climate is not a really place uh, for uh-huh. cows to grow. There's not enough grass on the ground. Right. This is, this is the reason they are only grown at the north of Israel. Hmm. And you don't have enough space to grow uh, free cows. Uh, grass-fed cows uh-huh. to feed the whole country. Uh-huh. <laughs> I noticed on your TV show you visited Joseph Haddad in Bucharest, yeah. and the most famous chef there who happens to be Israeli. Mm-hmm. And I noticed as you were entering his restaurant, he stopped to kiss the mezuzah. And I wonder what role, if any, religion plays in your life and in your work. I'm not into religion. I think it uh, makes us more problems than... Uh, more borders. <laughs> more borders and uh, more problems than uh, solutions. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because for a lot of Israelis we meet, I mean, you are 
born in Israel, religion plays a very minor role because they just feel so Israeli. You know, where we come from, Barack in the U.S. and me in Belgium, religion is what keeps any us connected to, to each other because we don't have Israel um, as a place to, to connect to. Many people like to be connected to something, to, the, to be a part of community. This way they don't feel alone. They're less scared. Right. Because life is a really scary thing because we are all going to die. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. It's our tribe. Yeah. It goes back to the cavemen. Yeah. So you need your tribe. And I can, uh, over here we already have the tribe. So uh, it doesn't matter if you're religious or not. Yeah. We've heard about Uber and, mm -hmm. uh, and the founder, uh, Travis, uh, was ousted. And his new concept is to create restaurants that only exist in delivery applications. Meaning the food is cooked in a basement somewhere. The customer sees what looks like a restaurant, but there's no physical place where people can go and sit. And that's his big vision to disrupt the restaurant industry. Food is not just for feeding ourselves as fuel. It has a much greater part in your life. Because if I would ask, if I would tell you now, listen, I would give you all the money in the world, okay? You don't have to do nothing anymore. Only what you'd like to do. I guess that what you would say is that you would like to spend a little bit more time together, a little bit more time with your children, a little bit more time with your family, a little bit more time with your parents. The only way that I know to do it is around the table. There's nothing more fulfilling than to sit down with all your family around one table. Yeah. Absolutely, sure. absolutely. Do you, you've said before that Israeli cuisine is Israel's best ambassador. Do you find that Israeli cuisine is really crossing, it goes beyond politics when people look at an Israeli restaurant and they might have a certain idea of Israel? Do they apply that idea to Israeli cuisine or does that transcend the politics? I think it's transcend the politics because we are a melting pot of Jewish people that came from all over the world, from uh, Northern Africa, from Eastern Europe. And when you're here, if you're eating a, a salted fish, you know it comes from Eastern Europe. When you eat a madrucha or a risa, you know it came from Tunisia or Morocco. You know exactly where everything came from. But the ability to put all of those things on the same plate and make it work together, this is what is Israeli cuisine. It's taking what was already here, the hummus, the pita, the falafel, to taking things that uh, Jewish people uh, brought from Eastern Europe, the Jewish people came from uh, Northern Africa, and to make everything work together on the same plate. Amazing. Um, so as we said, you're 46 years old. Mm -hmm. You look much younger. Thank you. Is there a secret? I don't think so. Really, really good uh, genetics and uh, try to be happy with your life. <laughs> what's, uh, what's your plan for the next 46 years? I don't really have big plans. I go along. Go with the flow? Well, it's good to have plans. But then again, you need to be open-minded. Or you just plan your life ahead and then reality happens. Just like John Lennon said. Yeah. So uh, if you don't want life to joke at you, it's good that you make your plans. It's good that you had the idea to go there at that date, at that time. But be open-minded. It might change because maybe another door would open. Maybe a better one. Yeah. So you just have to be alert. You now live in Israel, although you travel mm -hmm. around the world. 
Um, as an Israeli, can you say you're proud of Israel? First of all, I'm proud of Israel. Second of all, I'm crazy about this country. And third of all, I hate it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> That's so Israeli as well. Yeah. 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 You live in Tel Aviv. Do you feel like you live in a bubble? We live in a bubble, but we create a bubble. And we, we create it for a reason, because it's a reasonable bubble in this crazy country. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, maybe um, you will inspire us to cook more. And uh, I'll, I'll... Use the juicer. Yeah. Use, <laughs> use, the juicer. <laughs> use the juicer that has been standing on our, on our counter, this super expensive cold-pressed juicer. And, you know, we have, like, uh, in our front yard, we have kale and we have... Um, cucumbers. Our heart is in the right place. <laughs> yeah, so our what do you do when you right wake place? up in the morning? <laughs> Oatmeal these days. <laughs> Oatmeal. And that's progress. Something you could just pour into a bowl and yeah. add Half some an milk. Half an avocado. And, and, and that's know, it. Yeah. yeah. Pour some olive oil, run out the door. Um, no, but the great thing about living in Tel Aviv is, you know, for someone who, who does not cook much, is, is there's so much food around us. And, and, it's, and there's healthy options. And there's It's you even know, more than that. I don't, I don't understand why we need fridges in our house anymore. Mm. Because you can buy everything fresh for the same day. Yeah. Everybody has a small market somewhere near his house that yeah. he could buy a few uh, tomatoes and a few cucumbers and uh, fresh cheese. And, and that's it. You don't need more than that. I agree. I agree. I mean, outside of the fact that we have this freezer full of three weeks long food, <laughs> we do really don't like the with fact my meatballs. that... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so the fact that we interviewed you now, does that mean we can wait less than three or four months for a, a, a Boric um, invitation? Or is it strictly, um, no, is there a means, strict policy? It means that you can just give me a phone call and I'll take care of you. Oh, amazing. <laughs> Look, at that. Look at that. Look at that smile. That's the way everything works in Israel eventually. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm glad you're open and you say it. Great. All right. Barack, thank you so much for joining us. That was really quick. Which yeah. Barack are you talking to? <laughs> Founder Stories is brought to you by F2 Capital in partnership with IDC International Radio and No Camels. Subscribe now on your favorite podcast app. <laughs>